Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Awesome. Well, how are you doing? You excited for this? This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to give my wife this microphone. So this is a first for us. We have never co-taught a message before. And so uh, let's give God a round of applause for making this miracle happen today. Yes. yes. Go, God. Uh, I just, real briefly, before we get into to our topic today, I want to just say how proud of I am, I am of our youth. It was so much fun hanging out with them, getting to bond with the kids, riding roller coasters. Even some of them rode uh, some coasters for the first time, so that was kind of fun. Uh, lying to them, telling them it's perfectly safe and fine and there's nothing to be afraid of, um, and then watching them uh, in shock and awe realize I was not telling them the truth. So <clears throat> that was a, that was a lot of fun. We uh, had some, you know, with all that was said and done, we had very few uh, things happen. Um, we did, I would say, lose a kid at one point during, you know, like in the, in the wave pool area, but we recovered them alive, so that was good. Um, at one point in the wave pool, I, I noticed this uh, young teenage girl just frantic, like trying to breathe. And I'm like, oh, no, what do I do? Like, there's a lifeguard right there, but he doesn't see uh, what's going on. And, and she just was visibly shaken. And I, so I went over to her and I was like, are you OK? And she looked at me and she was like, no, like this. And so instantly I was like, come with me if you want to live. So I grabbed her by the hand, and the Baywatch music kicked in, and I, you know, helped her out, and that that was pretty cool, and she seemed to be okay after that. And then uh, on the way home, we almost broke down in the bus. Uh, we went over some railroad tracks, uh, small little bump, and then the bus began to violently shake, so much so we had to pull over, and uh, and so. We looked. Everything seemed to be normal. We drove, and it was okay. I th- you know, and uh, we borrowed a bus. We borrowed from a bus. A neighboring yes, church. from so a neighboring church. Let us borrow it for free. But I had to drive 60 miles an hour all the way home. So a two and a half hour drive turned into almost a three hour drive. So that was lovely. But uh, God was gracious. We learned about intercessory prayer uh, during that trip, and uh, we made it safe and sound. So it was such a good time. Um, and so we uh, were privileged to. Take your kids out and, and hang out and uh, look forward and to. And I believe the next there time. were 29 people that went right, 20 kids and nine yep. adults. Yeah, so that's pretty awesome. And we it's all made group. it with our sanity. Yeah. Yes, it was great. And I didn't have to go. I stayed home and relaxed. Right. <laughs> all right. So today's message. We're we're in the Song of Solomon. Uh, we're continuing the greatest hits series. We're going to be in chapter one. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Song of Solomon chapter one. The verses will also be on the screen there for you. And what's kind of fun about this book, unlike any of the other books, is it's divided up into voices or characters, almost like you're reading a play. So the wife speaks and then the husband speaks and then her friends speak. And uh, and it just kind of tells the story along over the course of eight chapters. How many of you guys know, and see, this is the important thing, recognizing that the wives' friends are in this book. How many of you guys know when you're dating, it's not just important to impress the girl, you also have to win over her friends. Because when you make the girl mad, how much they like you determines what kind of advice they're going to give her. 
right? So you need to win the friends over as well. I know when we were first dating, uh, we were dating long distance, and I think my wife, after we, we met in Nashville, Tennessee, and then we both went home to our separate places, I think she went around showing her friends my picture, asking them if I was cute. And, and I'd like to think it was like, hey, he's cute, right? Right? You know, he's cute, right? Uh, I think it was probably the other way around. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, they didn't have their glasses on that day, and I passed, and we're still together. Uh, you did that, didn't you? Well, yeah, and what made it even better for his sake is he was in a band, and I showed them a CD jacket with his picture on it. You know, he had an official CD, so that kind of upped his game for everyone, too. They're like, oh, he's in a band. Wow, he's so cool. They didn't know if I was any good, but I was <laughs> at least in a band. I, I was on a CD, so uh, I had that going for me. But to add a little flair to this story, to draw us into the Song of Solomon, into the, this series we're calling Greatest Hits, we're not necessarily going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter in this book. Um, but I think it's fitting that since it, the very opening words, it's the woman speaking, I'm going to have Tony read verses 1 through 4 for us as we get into this study today. And I just think as we hear the woman speak, it'd be good to hear it through a woman's voice. So. All right, I think I can do that. All right. Okay, this is Solomon's Song of Songs, more wonderful than any other. Kiss me and kiss me again. Yes! Can we get our response team forward? We're going to pass the buckets. <laughs> it's about to get biblical up in here. Wow, okay. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. All right, we'll, we'll try to get through this. But yes, say that again. Say that again. Kiss me and kiss yes! me again. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen. For your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. Oh, how happy we are for you, O oh king. We praise your love even more than wine. And the young woman replies, how right they are to adore you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we invite you into this space today, into our church life, our church family, our families, our marriages, our relationships. God, we invite you into our present moment into our future. Lord, we want to build our lives on you, Jesus Christ, our faith in you. You are the solid rock that never moves. You said the wise man builds his house on the rock. So God, help us build our houses in every form and fashion on you. God, we ask you to speak and move. I pray that you would you would speak directly to every heart, whether they are single, married, um, outside of marriage, uh, either through losing a loved one or whatever the case may be, God, that you, through your word, would bring encouragement. We would be filled with your joy. And God, you give us hope for the future. And all God's people said, amen. This, this is going to be so much fun. So a couple of things I want to point out right here. First off, she says, kiss me and kiss me again. I love that. The opening pages of this book. In the English standard, standard Version, this is the New Living Translation. In the English Standard Version, it says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let him kiss me. What strikes me here about just the opening words of this book is that the wife is inviting her husband to make out. That's awesome. I mean, this is going to get uncomfortable. If you're, if you're prudish today... And you're uncomfortable with talking about relational things. I'm just going to dispel this for you. This is in the Bible, so deal with it. 
There's a reason why pastors and people don't talk about it. It makes people uncomfortable. And there's also a reason why over 50% of marriages end in divorce. There's a reason why children grow up in pornography, and that's instructing them about intimacy. There's a reason why there's dysfunction. It's because we're not talking about the beauty of God's creation in the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So I do not apologize for what the Bible says, Mm -hmm. ever, and neither should you. But we should declare what the Bible says, because when you remain in the truth, it does what, beloved? It sets you free, and we want to walk in freedom, right? Amen? Amen. So she says, come and let's kiss. And I know this is like her invitation to intimacy. It's, it's like, come, I want to be with my husband. There's a longing in her heart to be kissed by her husband. And I know some of you ladies out there might be thinking, yeah, stinking right, right? Like, it's only because this was written by a dude that it says that in this book, right? I can just, I can just hear maybe some of those thoughts floating around there. And I might agree with you. This is from Solomon. He's writing this. It's poetic. It's a song. It's one of the best songs he's ever written, according to him. And he might be fantasizing a little bit here that his wife is saying, come kiss me again. Come and let's kiss Or it could just be that at this point, they're newlyweds, right? They're newly married. And in the beginning, if you've been married or in a relationship, romantic relationship, intimacy tends to come easy in the beginning, right? Okay. Right. Now, let's look at why she says this. Why is she beckoning her husband to come kiss her? We can look at verse 2. It says, for your love is sweeter than wine. Verse 3 It says, how pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder the women love you. Like what dude is not going to feel really good if his wife comes and says, there's a reason why all the women like you. Can I get an amen, guys? I mean, like that does something to the confidence of it. When your wife says, there's a reason why every girl likes you. I mean, that, that does something to our confidence. But there's a reason why she can say that. There's a reason. This invitation, this beckoning, yearning for intimacy, let him kiss me. In other words, she's saying, let nothing come between us. Let nothing stand in the way of our love. And she's saying this vibrantly. She's free. She's excited. And there's a deep reason why. It's because his love is sweet. And his name is like a sweet fragrance. And I would say it's because his name is like a sweet fragrance that it makes his love oh so sweet. As we're discussing this topic, we're kind of talking about the subject and what's in the word and what God might, what God might want to bring out. Tony came up with a really awesome question in looking at this verse. His name was like a sweet fragrance. And her question she brought up to think about, and this is something we believe that all couples and individual c- people in a marriage relationship, we need to ask this question, is my name like a sweet fragrance to my spouse? Is my name like a sweet fragrance? That was really insightful. I see some people laughing, giggling. So think of it like this. When my spouse thinks about me, 
is she or he desperate to embrace or are they desperate to run away? Right, and, you know, we understand in a marriage there are good days and bad days. So we're not saying you might never feel like your spouse is not a sweet fragrance because sometimes there's been an argument and you want them far away. We understand that, but we're saying as an overall theme in your home, in your relationship, do you long to be together or are you happier when you're apart? So basically we're asking the question, am I refreshing to my spouse? Do they find me a sweet fragrance that brings them peace and calm and they want to be with me? Or am I stinky like the three-day-old chicken guts in the trash because we forgot to change the trash from dinner a couple nights ago? Am I a disgusting smell when they think of my presence in the home? something to consider you know so obviously at this point in the story we have two newlyweds they're madly in love with each other and he's like a sweet fragrance and she's she's saying how right all these women are to adore you so maybe at this point you know Solomon and his bride they might have rose-colored glasses on but as we're discussing this as we're searching the word of God we believe that this type of intimacy is possible in a marriage as the marriage continues but we understand this type of intimacy doesn't just happen, right? Who's been married longer than two years? <laughs> it doesn't take long, right? So this type of intimacy, it doesn't stay this way naturally. And keeping a marriage in a place where both spouses can think well of each other, where they want to be together and not far away, that takes work and intentionality. Am I right? Amen. Yeah, yeah that's so good. Later in the book, as you read, there's so many descriptions in there. But later in the book, she describes her husband as a sachet of myrrh. And we'll G-rate it for the kids in, in here today. But a sachet of myrrh hanging on her chest, right? That This is how he, she describes him. Myrrh was a highly potent resin that was used to expunge nasty smells. They often anointed the dead with it in biblical times. I like to refer to it as the Febreze of the Bible. You know, sprinkle a little myrrh here and there, and you don't got to, you know, sweep that up right away. You know, you all know what I'm talking about, a little doggy doo-doo on the, on the floor. And we're like, well, just, psh, 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 you know, well, we'll save that for later. You know, we think like we're doing something. But it, it was a way to expunge, to get rid of uh, bad odors. And here she said he's like a locket of that, a bunch, a bundle of that, just hanging out right here. So, so men, if you want to be like that myrrh hanging out right here on your wife, you need to smell good, and not just physically, right? You, you don't, like, if you're working outside all day, you don't want to come in smelling like a ripe summer's day in a youth locker room. You know, if you've been to a middle school locker room, you know what that smells like. You will never forget that smell. You don't want to walk in smelling like that, expecting her to say, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, right? You look like you've been munching on a turd. You're not going to get that kind of a response, <laughs> You know, you know, you got to pay attention to these things. But, but not just physically. You need to smell good relationally, emotionally, spiritually. These, these are things we need to keep in mind. Again, there's no perfect marriage. We're not up here saying we got it all together, and I'm not saying my pits don't stink after mowing the grass, right? We, we have to be conscious of these things. But we want you to work towards this goal that I believe is a God-given goal. And as we work towards this goal, we can see things begin to shift in our relationship and in our intimacy. So what are we working for? 
We are working to protect the intimacy God designed as a gift to every married couple. There's a gift that God has designed just for you. And the way we protect that is by establishing a culture in our home so that toxic behaviors, beliefs about your significant other, interactions that are all negative can be dealt with and purged out of the relationship. The kind of relationship that we're, we're striving for is one where both of you are a sweet fragrance one to another, drawing close together, and that's the kind of relationship Jesus wants you to have. This is why we talked about last week by making Jesus the center of your relationship, the foundation. If you have not invited Christ into your relationship, your foundation's fractured. Your foundation's already faulty. You're not building in the, for the same direction. And this is important because Jesus is fighting for your intimacy. Jesus, the Lord, is before the throne interceding for you. I mean, we think about personal struggles. He's interceding for your marriage. Why? Because what God has put together, let no one separate. So he's fighting for your relationship. He's interceding for your relationship. He wants your intimacy to be off the charts rocking. If we're talking about music. He wants you to be launching number ones out left and right. So he's fighting for your relationship. But we also have an enemy who's trying desperately to destroy it. And I, I just want to note really quick, I think that's a good point to note, that Jesus is involved and interested in your intimacy, both romantically and relationally, emotionally, all forms. I think a lot of times as Christians, we don't think Jesus cares about that part. But he does. He's fighting for your intimacy because God designed marriage. So God is for your marriage yes. and all the good things that come with marriage. He's involved. You can invite Jesus into every facet of your marriage, including intimacy. Yes, that's so good. Great point. So I want to show you just a few verses in Genesis at the very beginning with the very first marriage to show you how this has been a struggle from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 Here's what it says. Now, this is in the Garden of Eden before sin. This is God's designed marriage. This is God's view of what marriage and intimacy should look like. In verse 25 of chapter 2 of Genesis, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were both completely naked, completely transparent with one another. They were hiding nothing, and there was no shame. There was no, like, Checking yourself in the mirror just to make sure, you know, you, that cheeseburger you ate at midnight last night's not coming back to haunt you, right? There's, there's nothing that is in between their relationship. But the moment sin entered the picture, the moment they listened to the serpent, the enemy, something changed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says, at the moment their eyes were opened and suddenly they felt what? Shame at their nakedness. So the one benefit, the beauty that God had given them, that they were naked without shame. Now because of sin, there's a shame in the nakedness. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. The moment sin entered the picture and they knew they were naked, they were riddled with insecurity. They were riddled and overcome with fear, shame, pride. This was an instantaneous break in their intimacy and in their relationship. They were no longer clinging to one another, which you'll read in chapter 2. It says when a man leaves his father and mother, he clings to his wife, right? You remember that? He clings to his wife. They're not clinging to each other anymore. What are they doing? They are hiding themselves from one another. They are covering their shame. They're covering 
their shame from one another. The transparency has gone. Their intimacy is shattered, and so is their unity. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, after God confronts Adam and the serpent and Eve in the garden after they sinned, he begins to reveal to them, okay, now that you've done this, here's what's going to happen. Here's the consequence of this decision. Here's what he tells Eve. He says, you will desire to control your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Something shifts because of fear, insecurity. Now, because I'm not confident alone with my relationship with God, in order to feel secure, I have to manipulate my husband to do what I want him to do. And because my wife's manipulating me, and that makes me feel like less of a man, I'm going to show her who's boss, and I'm going to dominate her. It's a break in unity. It's a break in intimacy, and it's what Satan has been doing to the couple that God put together since the beginning of time. Everything he wants to do in your relationship is destroy what God has put together. In this broken world, if we aren't going to relentlessly fight to protect our intimacy in marriage, we are purposefully opening the door for the enemy to destroy it. You can't just sleep the day away and expect everything to go well. So what's killing many marriages today is really there are too many open doors to the enemy. The snake wants to slither in, choke out intimacy, kill your unity, destroy your marriage, wreck your purpose, and the like. Later in Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 4, the bride calls out to her husband after she's making these declarations. She's saying, take me with you. It, it's this longing to be close. This is, again, a call to intimacy to be together. Let nothing come between us. Bring me along with whatever you're doing. And then her friends speak, how happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. So right here we see that Solomon did his job. He won the friends over, right? They're, they're in the camp. They're like, you are, you're good to go, bro. Like, we approve of you. He, he's out of the friend zone now. He's into the lover zone. They've, uh, they've approved. And after her friends make this declaration, the wife says something I think is so special and so very significant. And I want my wife to read this passage. She says, how right they are to adore you. So what we can see at this point, she's not jealous, right, that these women are praising her husband. No, in fact, well, and let me note too, she's not filled with contempt or disgust at their praise for her husband. In fact, she joins them in praising her man. Like, you're right. He's wonderful. He's awesome. Isn't he amazing? And why can she do that? Because his love for her is sweeter than wine. His presence is a sweet fragrance to her. And so I just want to note, too, it's odd in our culture, in our society, for us to openly praise our spouse. It's more common today to speak critically and negatively of your spouse yeah. to other people. And it's actually more accepted to speak negatively about your spouse in a group of people. If I were to go into a group of women and be like, my husband's so amazing, you'll never believe what he did. I can imagine like the eye rolls and the ugh, whatever. Like we don't celebrate our spouses like we should. And there's a reason, usually, and that's there's yeah. been a breakdown in intimacy. Right. His good name amplifies his wife's experience of love. 
And again, it like you said, Tony, and it's tragic in many marriages. Rather than the the spouse responding to the praise of others, like yes, you're you're right, right. to praise him. You're you're right. What's the common response? Yeah. But if you only really knew what they were like behind closed doors. If you only really knew, if you knew them like I know them. You you wouldn't have the same. You saw the truth. You you wouldn't feel that way. And and honestly, can I be honest with you this morning? That very reason is why I've never preached on marriage. Ever. Because I've heard those very words in my own house. And how can I preach on a subject as a hypocrite? I can't. I can't. And so this year when my wife said, it's time to preach the marriage message, does that mean I've got it all together? Absolutely not. But it means there's been a shift in our home that I give God glory and praise for. And it, he had to break me to do it. But I'm glad he did. Right, so we're in this space, and, and and this is our heart. We don't want this dynamic in your relationship. We want you to be able to equally praise each other. And and to be honest, one of the the, the things that that bother me so much is that, like you said, Tony, this is so common in our culture, and we don't even step back and say, "What's wrong with this picture?" Right. We watch the the comedy shows on TV, and it's the dumb husband and the nagging wife. And the dumb husband complains about the nagging wife and vice versa. It's just, it's common. Like, very rare would you have a healthy picture of marriage. But this is what's embedded in our mind. And so I I think it's time that we teach the word of God. We let the truth begin to shift relationships. And I think what God wants to do in this day and age, he wants to bring a revolutionary shift in our homes, in our marriages, if we can get a handle on really this one thing. First, again, it's put Christ at the center. I can't emphasize that enough. Christ has to be at the center. If you're submitting yourself to Christ, it's going to lead you that direction. But number two, rather than a culture of discouragement and and nitpicking and, and fighting and complaining and criticism, we need to develop a culture of honor in our homes. A culture of honor. And this is really what you see in these opening pages. The wife is honoring her husband. Why? Because he's living a life worthy of honor. And so he's able to honor her with his life, and she's able to honor her with his words. And I believe that a person who demands to be honored because of a position in their home or because of a certain gender has proven the reason why they should not be honored. I mean, because you're a man, that doesn't mean you get honor. Because you're a woman, that doesn't mean you get on it. Think, think about, like, people you work with that they are in authority over you. They're the worst bosses, but they demand respect. Why? Because they're in charge. And they're the worst people to work for. Well, if you're that way in your home, you're, you're supposed to be leading spiritually, husbands, and you're junk to follow, and you demand honor, you're going to produce the same kind of environment. You know, wives, if you're supposed to be honoring and respectful, but you can't say two kind words about your husband. These are these are things that the enemy's been able to do and just rip apart, and we just go about our days not even thinking about it. And, and so we're passionate about getting God the opportunity to jumpstart our relationships back in the right direction. 
If you are living a life of honor, if your life is a sweet fragrance, you don't have to demand it because it will be freely given by those that are around you. If you're worthy of honor, it will compel people to honor you. You know, it's so common for many of us in relationships and in marriage to hit a wall, an emotional or intimate wall in our relationships. We start living as inmates or business partners or opponents rather than friends, lovers, and teammates. And when that happens, we disregard each other. And when we've disregarded each other for so long, the enemy is able to choke out the intimacy that God longs for us to see. And again, when our, our spouse thinks of us at that point, it's not a sweet fragrance. We're not putting a smile on their face because of the way we've lived in, in a dishonorable way. But here's what I want to – we came across a article this week I thought was so powerful, and I want my wife to share with you these five intimacy killers. It, it's by a, a company called Thrive Global. They're actually a, a company that um, reboots – bad cultures in businesses. So they go in, they assess the culture of your organization, they find out what's what's wrong with your culture, and they help you reboot it so that you can build a healthy culture and, and, and have your business thrive. And they actually wrote a article on relationships, and I believe that if we can hone in on these things, we can begin to reverse the curse that's been in operation in our marriages, in our relationships, and start working towards what God wants us to experience in our lives. Yeah, and so um, like Joey said, they're called Five Intimacy Killers, but the actual title of the article is called Five Deadly Intimacy Killers. So if these five things are in operation in your relationship over time, your intimacy will be dead. Um, I want to note really quick that they seem like small little things that don't really add up to much. But as we read, I think you'll understand why it's such a big deal in separating us from intimacy. If you're taking notes at all, or if you're not, you should probably start right now. Because these are really good. Because not only do they label what most of us do, and it actually says here, it gave me some comfort because if I'm confessing, I'm guilty of all five. <laughs> but it says, if you're like most people, chances are you've interacted with your partner through one or more of these harmful crossovers, or verbal trespassing without realizing it. So number one is mind reading. Mind reading for your spouse. Not finishing their sentences in a sweet romantic way, knowing what they're going to say, but mind reading. It says we do this a hundred times a day. We make up stories about a situation without evidence. We jump to conclusions about what our mate is thinking or doing without checking it out. We might say something to our partner like, you probably think I'm irresponsible because I lost my cell phone. We are, we are assuming what they're thinking. So to start to try to sidestep this trespass, start asking a question. Do you think I'm irresponsible because I lost my cell phone? I know sometimes in the middle of a conversation it's hard to step back and ask a question instead of just throwing it out because you can see the look on their face or whatever. You know, you've been in this situation a million times. Maybe you're really irresponsible with your cell phone like I am. But you can ask the question, and what that does, it lowers the defenses of your spouse. It lowers the level of tension so they're not feeling so like they're being attacked in that moment. You can ask a question. Number two is much like number one, emotion reading. It's basically the same thing except we tell our partner what they're feeling. We conclude what our partner is feeling without asking. We can say something like, you're angry with me because I'm late. Well, what does that do? Automatically, they're going to want to say, no, I'm not. 
So to lower that defense, we can say, are you angry with me because I'm late? Ask a question. Don't tell your spouse, and I'm preaching to myself right now. Don't tell your spouse what he or she is thinking or feeling. Ask a question, and it will lower the barrier for a more open dialogue. Number three, name-calling. And this isn't like jerk and stupid, those kinds of names. This is when we label our spouse with negative attributes. We say something like, you're mean, you're selfish, you're lazy, you always do this to me. So to avoid this, try using I messages instead of you messages and a pointing finger at your spouse. Try saying, I'm uncomfortable with how we're talking. I'm uncomfortable with how you're speaking to me. I don't like what you said. That made me feel this way, right? Number four is put-downs. Put-downs. We criticize our partner's behaviors or habits by saying, you always pile up your dirty dishes. You never wash your clothes. You always leave your underwear on the floor. When, and I know some of you have probably heard this before, but when we add always and never to our relationship, we're already killing that conversation. It's already dead before it starts. If you start off by you always or you never, it's not going to, it's never going to get anywhere, and right? And I would just throw in there, <laughs> it's not true either. Yeah. It's, it's not true. <laughs> like. You don't leave your underwear on the floor, Timmy? I'm, Timmy I cannot, really wants to I know. cannot either confirm or deny that no, remark, No, he Timmy. doesn't, Timmy. He's actually very responsible with his clothing. But, but it's not always. I don't always leave the trash on you know in when it's full in the bin i do sometimes take it out right so it just doesn't so you sometimes complete the process and put a new bag in that's been our current discussion so 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 it's not always (laughs) right right, so when you're not when you're not honest about the situation the person instantly feels attacked and and it just creates those divisionary walls so here's how we can change it we can say when you continue to pile dirty dishes in the sink it makes me feel like my requests don't matter it doesn't make me feel validated. It makes me feel like you don't care about what I'm saying. And I know these aren't magic fixes, but these are ways to improve the health of our conversations, the health of our communication. And number five is commanding. We tell our partners what to do and expect them to do what we say. We say something like, don't buy those shoes, they're too expensive. And I know there's some guys in here who really like shoes, too. That's not just a woman thing. I've seen a lot of guys who spend a lot of money on shoes. So we could say, Joey's not one of those, but we could say, don't buy those shoes. They're too expensive. You don't need them, kind of in a parental way. Instead of commanding and demanding things from our spouse, we can turn around and say, you know, have you looked at our finances? Do you really think it's that wise to spend that much money on those shoes this week? Do we really need them? Ask a question. It's all about all of these intimacy killers are about honor. How do you communicate with your spouse? Because when we're lazy with our speech, when we're not intentional, we're going to throw things out like, you're selfish, you're mean, you always do this, you never do this. Because we're naturally just going to let our emotions fly. We're not going to be intentional with how we speak. But if we really want to honor our spouse in our home and outside of the home, Changing how we speak, changing how we communicate in our home is going to prove that we really do want to honor them. We really do want to give respect to our spouse just because they're our spouse. I mean, they don't need to be anything. Just because they're our spouse, we should respect them and honor them. So over time, these crossovers cause 
intimate connections to develop into a state of relationship failure. So what this article is saying, and this was actually, um, a st there was a study by a therapist who revealed that um, when these things are imminent, a breakup is on the verge. You know, there's, there's a possibility for a breakup, a greater possibility for a breakup. But we're destroying our intimacy over time. If we leave these things this way in our marriage, this dysfunction, we'll destroy intimacy. We may stay married, but we're not going to be saying, come and kiss me. Let's go run off together. We're going to say, get away from me. I can't stand you. Right? And so sometimes when, when Joey and I are going back and forth, I picture it this way, when it's an unhealthy way, and I'm saying, you never, and he's saying, no, you never. I picture sometimes, I've actually literally done this. I don't know if it's weird or not, but it works for this illustration. Like we each have this pile of bricks, and when I say, you are this way, I put a brick on the wall. And he says, well, you always do this. And then he puts another brick on the wall. And if we keep going back and forth over time, we've established this huge wall of defense. And then once the wall is constructed, at that point, the conversation is going to go nowhere but from bad to worse. If one of us doesn't say, okay, I need to come back to this later, it's not going to get anywhere. Because then you just start lobbing bombs over yeah, the wall. Yeah, then we're just going to start throwing things over the wall, right? At first it starts out as tomatoes or something like that because you don't want to mortally wound your spouse. But if that wall stays up, you're going to start um, firing darts and arrows. And that will mortally wound your relationship. It will mortally wound the marriage. And I think this is where Proverbs comes in. Where it says life and death are in the power yeah. of the tongue. Yep. You know, what we speak, if we're not intentional about the words we use, we will turn words that should be, like the word says, like, gra like grace, like salt, mm -hmm. encouraging people, building each other up to become like darts, like the fiery darts of the enemy. And, so, and, and who knows the best place to strike than the one who's closest to you, right? So we actually get those killer blows in. And I want to mention, too, you know, as we can build the wall, if we can follow at least some of the advice in this article, it's simple. It's simple, simple, simple advice. But if we can lower the barrier of defense, each of us can start taking a brick off of the wall instead of adding to it. So we're not going to do it perfectly. I understand we're human. We're going to fall short. You know, we're not always going to get it right. But if we can start retraining our minds to communicate in a way that brings honor to our spouse just because they're our spouse, not because they've deserved it or gotten a gold star for the day, it's going to change the culture in our home. It will. And, and I think it's important that both spouses are taking bricks off the wall you know, because there's two sides to that. If we don't fight for intimacy, like we said a minute ago, we're going to open the door for the enemy to destroy it. And so this is part of how we fight for the intimacy. We tear down the wall and we cling together. Uh, the culture of honor does not fall on one spouse alone. I know that in many times in church uh, tradition, there seems to be an emphasis on uh, a, set, a set of verses that seem to say, well, you know, the, the man is the leader, and so the wife is supposed to submit and honor her husband. And, and there is some truth in that, but it gets skewed because of the fallen nature, I, I believe, in many ways, and that we're actually misinterpreting what the Bible is telling us. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, this is the context of the passage we're about to read. Paul tells the church, he says, and this is to all believers. There's no gender here. There, there's, no, there's no delineation. He says, live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. So all of us are supposed to mirror Christ. 
in our relation in, in our lives. Doesn't matter if we're in a relationship or not. We're to mirror Christ. And how do, how do we do it? By following his example, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, as a pleasing what? Aroma to God. So Jesus was a pleasing fragrance. He was a pleasing aroma. He, this isn't just for husband and wife. This is for all believers in Christ. If we love Jesus, why do we love him? Why, why, why do we love his name? Why, why is his name the name that's above every other name? Why? It's because it's like a sweet aroma. He gave his life. He gave his all for us. He served. He lowered himself. The one in all the world who deserved to be honored lowered himself to honor the ones that were supposed to serve him. So if we're pattering ourselves after his life, then this is for all of us. So honor goes both ways. And so in that context, that's how we interpret Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through 22, and then verse 25, where it says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice it's mutual submission. It's not, it's not the woman submits to the man. It's you both submit to one another. Because you're believers in Christ. You're equal. You're co-heirs with Christ. But then he specifically makes a determination or a delineation. He says, wives, this means submit your husbands as to the Lord. Because God's put him in spiritual leadership over your home. But husbands, verse 25, it means loves your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You're to sacrifice yourself for her. So we are mutually submitting. Both are submitting. It just is nuanced. A little differently, as the man lays his life down, puts himself aside to build his wife up, and she's like, oh, gee golly, how amazing is that? I'm going to do whatever he's asking me to do. Because what wife wouldn't want to do that to someone who is literally giving himself every second of the day for her? Right? So this is mutual submission, and it's done in a way that patterns the way Christ demonstrated for us. And it's done in a way, too, where both spouses are receiving exactly what they need. Yeah. From the other. What do women want? We want someone to love us and listen to us and know, know that he's going to be willing to sacrifice for us. What do men want more than anything else from their wife? Respect and honor yeah. and adoration. And so if we're both working at doing the things that Ephesians 5 lays out, we're both going to be submitting, we're both going to be sacrificing, we're both going to feel loved in the process. Amen. Yeah, and so sometimes we need to be reminded that our marriage isn't about our happiness. So, so it's about covenanting to love someone else. And that was actually a revelation that the Holy Spirit spoke to me one time. I was in prayer. We had been in an argument, and I was praying, seeking the Lord about some things. And I felt the Spirit of God say, I did not give you your husband to make you happy. This is not about your happiness, Tony. I gave him to you so you could love him. And, like, the Holy Spirit put me in check in that moment. I was like, oh, well, because I thought it was all about me right now. But, okay, I guess we're going to go there. But it's true. I'm not here just for Joey to fulfill every need for me. I'm here to sacrificially love him and serve him. What did Jesus do for us? If marriage is supposed to be a mirror image of the gospel, Jesus gave his love, but we didn't deserve it. Yeah. Jesus honored us when we didn't deserve it. He forgives us even though we don't deserve it. He gives us grace, which is, by definition, undeserved favor, and his mercies yeah. are new every morning. And so what better way to model Christ 
but to love our spouse unconditionally, to forgive them for the 50 millionth time for the same trespass, to give them grace when they failed again. How better way to love like Jesus? And this is how we guard our intimacy. It's yeah. how. That's what's going to happen in your marriage. Yeah. And, and by developing an environment in your home of honor like this, what this allows the Spirit of God to do is to begin the work of healing and restoration that many of us are crying out for. Yeah. We're saying, God, heal my marriage. God, re restore this. Lord, Lord, why, why are they still like this? I've been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, and nothing seems to happen, but yet we're still throwing darts every time we get upset, and we're still uh, joining the work of the enemy to tear things down rather than build things up. And so when we begin to build a culture of honor, we give God the space to do what God does. And he's healer. He's restorer. And we provide the opportunity to become a sweet fragrance where there once was maybe a hideous odor. So the Lord can work on your heart to help you see good in your spouse that was already there. And when there's years and years of resentment, it's hard to look at your spouse and say, like, like we, we've done this. We've been to counseling, and, the, and we've been assigned. I want you to write down ten things you appreciate about your spouse. And when you're in that moment, you know, you're that season, that can be a very difficult challenge. But the good is there, even if you can't see it. And, and so what this does, building a culture of honor, allows you to begin to move that stuff out of, the, out of the way and focus on the good that's been there. And the more you focus on the good, the more your heart will begin to lean back in mm -hmm. toward intimacy with your spouse, where you'll be able to get to celebrate them with others in a genuine way. And the more we fight for intimacy, the closer we get to God personally, and the closer we get to each other, the less room the enemy has to work and operate in our relationships. The closer we are, the less space he has. And that means we're, as we're coming closer, we're pushing him out. And that's the goal. We're putting Jesus in. We're pushing him out. And he can't hang out where there isn't any room. And so I encourage you to begin today to covenant with your spouse, future spouse, to build a culture of honor in your home. It's so much easier to begin well than it is to try to reboot something that's been broken for many years. And so we want to encourage you with that today. Uh, we're going to transition to uh, the final part of our message series as we look at question and answer time. We want to encourage you to continue to text in questions. We'll go ahead and put the number on the screen uh, that, that you can text in your questions. We want to be as real and authentic as possible, pulling from our personal relationship experience, things we've learned, studied, read from the Word of God. And, uh, and we are not going to, again, these are anonymous text messages. I know several have said, well, I was going to text, but then I didn't. Well, go ahead, because we don't know who you are. It comes in uh, as a random number. It's not like we're going to be like, we're sensing from this area over here there might be a, a need. So uh, please do that, and that will help us as to help you. Um, but before we get into the, the question we did receive, I just want to wrap this message up. And I want to ask you, Tony, uh, what is one thing that you can point to that a woman is looking for in a man that could help him begin to build a culture of honor in his home? So let's say that this marriage is a wreck, but they both want to make it work and they want to build a culture of honor. What can the guy start doing to help rebuild that in his in his home? Well, for me, and I know from talking with other women just over the years and um, having friendships 
I feel as though women are looking for, um, if, we, if we are talking about honor, women are looking for humility in a man. And I think sometimes humility, the definition gets kind of twisted. Um, I think sometimes we refer to humility as having like low self-esteem or a low self-image, like you're lowly and you think low of yourself. But Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I believe he says, um, let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle. So Jesus doesn't have a, a self-esteem problem. God doesn't have low self-esteem. He's not lacking in, in anything, and he's not lacking in confidence. So what is Jesus saying about himself? Being humble is saying, I know who I am. I'm confident in who I am, but I'm going to lower myself anyway and serve you. And so a woman's not looking for a man to be beneath her, but she's looking for that, that character in the home, the one that, you know, if, if a man is humble and walking out in humility, he's going to listen when she speaks. He's not going to be so offended he can't listen. He's going to walk away. He's going to be a listener because he's confident in who he is. If um, a man is walking out in humility, he's going to serve her. She's not going to have to worry about if her needs are being met or if he cares about the children. He's going to serve the family. He's going to sacrificially love and serve the family. And why do we trust Jesus? He's humble and gentle. And what does that do for us? That brings us security. It makes us feel safe. We know we can trust this guy. He's for me. He's not against me. And so I think in the home, a woman really admires and adores. You know, if we're going to say how right they are to adore you, it's a man who is walking in humility. And I, I just want to note, too, I read a quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, a man who is humble is not going to be talking about how humble he is. In fact, he's not going to be thinking about himself at all. I just thought it was a really good statement because if you're humble, you're not going to walk around declaring how humble you are. So it's actually the opposite. Right? Yeah, so it kind of reminds me of a recent Chosen episode where Matthew, yeah. Matthew the tax <laughs> collector, the yeah, he, Matthew's like, yeah, I'm actually pretty humble. And then the guy <laughs> says the same thing. It's like, you're talking about how humble you are. You know, it's like, you know, oxymoron. Exactly. So that's good. Um, oh, I have a question for yes. you now. All right. Okay. What is one thing that you could point to that a man is looking for in a woman mm. that could help build a culture of honor in the home? That's good. I did, and, you know, obviously we don't speak for all men and women. But I think for me, probably, I think men want their wives to believe in them. Like deep down. I think, I, I think every husband wants to make his wife proud, wants her to be happy with him. He wants to make her happy. That's a, a d deep core thing. And so they want you to believe in them, which means they want you to believe that, you, that they can accomplish anything. And then when they don't, they don't want you to say, I told you so. I told you you were just going to screw that up again. You know, I, tol I told you. You know, we're talking about those intimacy killers. <laughs> he wants the wife to say, babe, I believe you could get back up, figure it out, and make it happen. Like just to have your back. Because a, a man is looking for someone to run into war with, not to fight against. When we fight, we fight to win. We want we want to win. We like like when we were first married, I had a hard time letting my wife win at anything we did. It, whether it was it was horrible. Whether it was playing soccer or anything like that. It's I like, would cry sometimes because yeah. you made me feel so, and I'm really competitive, so that's the problem. And he would not let me win in anything. So that, yeah, so we needed counseling over that too. But he's nicer now. But but that's just thing. We we want you to have our back. You know, when when you need something, we want you to believe we can accomplish it. 
And even if, like, I am the least handy person I have ever met. <laughs> least, I probably had four nervous breakdowns trying to drywall and mud my ceiling in my kitchen. And, and I know, I, I already know how deficient I am in that area. I, I know. I, I had a construction job that I got my hours cut and moved over to another, another area. <laughs> Not because I was fired, but I think just because they needed someone who knew what they were doing. <laughs> Right, right. So I, I get it. I'm not the most handy, but I don't need my wife telling me that, confirming my fear. And then when I make a mistake, telling me how bad I screwed it up and how I should just call my father in law because he can fix everything. Every right? girl believes in her dad. Right. Though. I know. I know. That's <laughs> no, like not kidding. what not to do. But so, so if so, no matter what, just believe in him. Believe he's going to get it, and when he's struggling, encourage him because he ultimately wants you to be proud of him. And I think if you demonstrate that in speech and in action, yeah. that's going to build him up in a way that he does feel like he can get out of the pit and go again. And I think practically, maybe we can just, you know, I think we do believe in our husbands a lot. I think we do think you can do it. I think just saying that, saying it in love would probably yeah. really help their heart and their confidence. You know, I really believe you can do that. I even heard a, uh, a marriage seminar one time where a guy was said, you could use it, like, for manipulation. <laughs> like, babe, you are the best dishwasher I have ever seen. I've actually tried that. And then just it walk away. It kind of does work. Like, no. babe, when, when you cut the grass in the diamond pattern versus the parallel pattern, man, I just love that. <laughs> you can use it, and, and we're dumb enough to believe you. Like, I'm, ju I'm just telling you. Like, it works. So, but no, in all kidding aside, that... But I do believe that. I think believing in your husband and, and humility are probably two things. Husbands walking in that humility. When your wife is upset, that's not a time to give every reason as to why it should have worked out, but it didn't. It's to hear the heart and, and speak to the and heart. Really validate and validate her emotions, yeah. not just tell her she's crazy, even if she is. And wives rec recognize that when you have that issue, your, pro your husband probably already knows he failed. If he didn't, he's going to feel dumb when it's brought up. And so recognize it's my job to make him feel affirmed, even in the midst of my, my issue, mm -hmm. uh, would go a long way. Um, but we did have a question texted in, and, and we're going to wrap up here quickly. But um, it says, a married couple has kids, and they start to grow in different directions, one seeking the Lord and one doesn't. I know that you're not supposed to divorce, but if the house is not healthy, do you stay together? Do you pray over that person for years, hoping for a change, or can you leave with your kids to better your life and your spiritual life? Do you split your home? So there are a lot of questions within the question. Um, but I would ask you, babe, to weigh in on that. Well, first, I mean, you can sense this person's frustration and their possible lack of losing hope in a moment. You know, I think if the enemy's after something, if he can get your hope, he can dissolve everything else. If he gets you to quit hoping that things could be better. So they sound to me like they're struggling to keep hope, but also to answer the question. I believe that there's several factors that could come into play. Like one, is your spouse a believer? Is this spouse a believer? And two, does this spouse who's growing in an opposite direction want to stay married? Do they want to stay married? Are they asking for a divorce? Those are questions I think would be important yeah, I to think know. I think so. I think in a question like this, it, there's not like a one-size-fits-all answer. It takes a lot of uh, like a conversation to yeah. find out the specific parameters. 
um, for that, just as you're saying. Um, but we can weigh in on a, a couple of things, uh, just like you're saying. The first, the first thing in regards to divorce, I think we have done this topic a disservice in Christianity for many years because we've viewed it as sin. It's a, it's a sin to divorce. If that's the case, then God has sinned because in the Old Testament, he said he divorced Israel for a time. So this is why it's important that we're biblical, not emotional. When we're making when we're when we're believing through our emotions, we, we skew all sorts of things. And what I'm about to say is also the reason why it's important to be biblical, because sometimes the hardest thing to do is be faithful to God in the midst of a very difficult season. But what the word says is if we are, we grow in perseverance and we grow in our confident hope in Christ Jesus, and he works all things out together for good. So good will come. The story's not done if it's not good. Right? right? So so that's some of the hardest things that we we go through. But the first thing about divorce is that Jesus gives a reason why you could divorce if that came to it. And again, if it was a sin, he's not going to give you permission to do it. But here's what he says in Matthew 5.32. He says, for the case of adultery or fornication, unfaithfulness, in other words, breaking the marriage covenant, they, they get with somebody else who's not their spouse, this would be the reason God would give for divorce. So the covenant's been broken. If it's broken, it doesn't exist. Right? So that, that's what Jesus has said himself. Paul gives some more instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and if you texted this question, I would really encourage you to meditate on 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. And he kind of, these passages are kind of divided into two sections. The first, he's talking about separation. And I think that this has also been skewed because it's actually not wrong for couples to separate for a time. It, if your relationship has gone so combative, so toxic, that intimacy is out the window, you're creating, a t if there's kids involved especially, you're creating a, a, a cancerous environment for our kids, it might be a good idea to, se to separate for a time. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, it says, For those who are married, I have a command that does not come from me, but it comes from the Lord. So this is directly from God through the Apostle Paul. It says, A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him. Right? So think about what he's saying. The goal is don't leave. But if you do, remain sing single. Like, don't go get with anyone else or else be reconciled back to your husband. So if you're going to separate, then don't do that to go find Mr. Right. The, there's a popular phrase, grass is greener on the other side. Well, that's not true. Grass is greener on the lawn you water. So, you know, we got to be biblical. So don't don't go and separate to hook up and find Mr. Right. You're never going to find him. We're all sinners. We're all broken. But if you do leave, then come back and be reconciled. And again, the same applies for the husband. Husbands, if, if it's cancerous and you separate, it's not so you can go find your girlfriend or, or Mrs. Right. It's to break away, allow some healing to take place, and come back. In verse 12, he then goes into divorce. He says, now I'll speak to the rest of you. Though this is not a direct commandment. So this isn't like God is saying this is how it should be done. This is wisdom that God has given Paul in instructing in these very difficult circumstances. 
He says, I will speak to the rest of you, though I don't have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer, that's important, and she's willing to continue to live with him, he must not leave her. So if the spouse is an unbeliever but still wants to stay married, you should stay married. And if the believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Right, so it's not an out because they're lost. For here, here's important: for the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. This isn't talking about salvation. It doesn't mean because you're saved that your kids are automatically saved. The word holy means set apart to the Lord. And in this context, it's talking about spiritual covering. So, so think about a couple, one spouse is, is a believer in Christ, has the Holy Spirit, the other one isn't. If they divorce, depending on which weekend is up, if the kids are at mom's house, they're under the spiritual covering of the Holy Spirit. If they're at dad's house and he's the unbeliever, there's no Holy Spirit covering there. So they're subject to whatever spirit is in authority over that house. Does that make sense? So here's what he's saying. He's saying, as long as you're in the home, because Christ be in you, there's a covering that will cover your kids. You become the spiritual authority over your kids because Christ lives in you. So it's important, especially when kids are involved, that you stay together. But verse 15 says, if a husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, then what? Let him go. Why? Well, if you were saved before you got married, Scripture says don't be unequally yoked. That was a sin to begin with, right? To, to go out, to step outside, to marry someone who's not a believer is violating God's word. So that wasn't a sanctioned marriage anyway. So if, if this is the case and the marriage is falling apart, he's saying let them go and you have peace with God. In such case, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other which would be better for everyone in the long run. For God has called you to live in peace. So if they want to stay, stay, work it out. If they want to go, let them go. But here's the, the most important part, verse 16, regardless of the circumstance. He says, don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you realize, husbands, that your wives might be saved because of you? There is a greater purpose for our existence than our happiness. It is the redemption of the world. You are an ambassador for Christ wherever you are, everywhere you are, whether it's in your own home, in your place of work, in this state, in another state, in another country. And so if you're in that circumstance where you're married to an unbeliever, you're an ambassador for Christ. And by staying in there, submitting to the Lord, surrendering to what God's asking you to do, you provide opportunity for them one day to become a believer in Jesus Christ. And really, amen. Yes, Virginia can testify we might, to we that. We might get Virginia up here in an I interview to have to, her give her testimony she because she's got a heck of a testimony. This. But it also can be the difference between changing the legacy in your family. Yeah. If you stay, your spouse becomes a believer, your kids become believers, you know, it can make all the difference in how your children will turn out in their children and generations to come. Unforeseen things we know nothing about, it can affect through the generations. Yeah, so we're not minimizing the pain of what that will require. It will require a sacrifice, but your sacrifice is unto the Lord. 
And when we submit ourselves to God, we allow God to work in and through us. Not only do we learn about ourselves and we're able to grow personally, but we provide God the opportunity to work miracles. And, and what an amazing testimony to have the unbelieving spouse come to faith in Christ and then have a home that can be built on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. So, again, if you're, in, if you're in a place, if your relationship's not safe, if you are in an abusive situation or it's a toxic and environmental, we, we have direction from God, you might need to separate, seek counsel, and come under authority, bring a mediator into that circumstance, and go through a time where you can begin to unpack some of that pain that's been like a festering cancer in your relationship so that you can come back in a healthy place and glorify God in your relationship. And um, opposite of that, if you don't have a word from God or it's mm. not a dangerous situation, if you're a believer and you're in this struggle right now or something similar, my suggestion to you would be to get a hold of every spirit-filled friend that you have yeah. and have them circle around you and That's pray good. and breathe and speak life over your marriage because God is who we just declared he was. He's the promise keeper, miracle worker, a way maker, when it's impossible, when right. there is no way. Yeah. So as much as you can, hold on to hope that God can and will and wants to change things around. Yeah. So we're, we're going to wrap up there, and we're going to enter just a time of prayer. I feel like it's, it's important that each week we end with prayer. And, and this week was about building a culture of honor in your home. And I know that's probably not something we all wake up thinking about. But if you're, if you're here with your spouse and that's something that you want to begin doing, maybe you don't even think your relationship's that bad. If you don't intentionally fight for your marriage, you're going to intentionally allow it to dissolve over time. This is something that requires maintenance and effort and intentionality. And so I would encourage you to take your spouse's hand. And as the music it begins to play, that, that you guys just spend some moment, moments right there right in your seat, praying together and say, Lord, forgive us for how we've been speaking to each other. Forgive us for the darts, the walls, the things that we've allowed to create a break in our intimacy. And Lord, we ask you to help us build a culture of honor in our home. That we would be a pleasing aroma to each other. That our intimacy could be restored. If you're single today and, and you don't have a spouse, I would ask you to place your hand over your heart because one day your heart's going to be knit to someone. And I'd ask you to begin praying to the Holy Spirit, asking him to help you honor the people around you now. Learn how to honor the people around you so that when that day comes and you meet the one you're going to spend the rest of your life with, it's a natural process. I'm going to just continue to honor them as I've learned to honor the people around me. And begin taking steps to honor those people around you. Find, find ways to, to honor uh, those in your life, whether it's at work or in a church or friends. Find those ways. Begin building those behaviors and those attitudes now, and it will make it so much easier for the time when you're married. But I want to pray. I want to bless us. We're going we're gonna to sing that song one more time before we close out, just because I just believe that God, His heart is for marriage. His heart is for our intimacy. And when we have strong families... We're going to have an amazing church. When we have strong families, we're going to have an awesome ministry. We're going to have an amazing city, culture, uh, community. It's going to be something spectacular. 
So, Lord, I just pray. I pray first and foremost for the person that texted in this question. God, I can't imagine the struggle that they might be enduring and, and what's going on. But, God, I know you're intimately aware of everything going on. I just pray for comfort and peace just to fill their heart. God, and even now I pray that you would begin to open their eyes to see their spouse anew today. Even if it's just one thing. Even if it's just the fact that they have nice eyes or a nice smile or or have a talent in some way. You draw them to something good that you've put in them. That that could be their focus. And that you could begin redeeming their perspective and their perception of their spouse. I pray, God, for the culture in their home. I pray, God, that you would just bless them in Jesus' name. And you begin to draw them back together through a relationship with Christ being at the center of their home. If their spouse is not a believer, God, I pray that you would draw them by your Holy Spirit to place their faith and trust in Christ. But God, we ask for strength to endure, strength to hold on to promises. We ask, God, that your goodness and kindness would fill them with new hope today. In Jesus' name. God, I, I bless the marriages, the couples that are here today. God, I bless them with just the peace of God with just a renewed heart, a renewed mind, a renewed love for each other. God, a, a renewed hope for intimacy, a renewed friendship. God, you rekindle the friendship that we had when we were first married. Just like the Bible says, we lost our first love with Christ. Sometimes we lose our first love with our spouse. And it's buried under so much resentment and pain and years and years of just undoubt with issues. And I just pray, God, that you begin to pull it out of the rubble. And begin restoring the friendship in marriages, restoring the intimacy, restoring the beauty in what you brought together. And that we begin to build this culture of honor in our home, that we'd be speaking life-giving words, calling each other into purpose, into our potential in Christ. And I pray, God, that especially when their kids are in the home, we'd begin modeling before our kids today what we want them to emulate in their future relationships. That we would have marriages worth pattering after. And Lord, we just thank you for second chances. We thank you for a new day and new hope. God, may you be pleased in us today and in our marriages. church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.